Welcome back to the Fintrepreneur Podcast. This week, Eli and I will be chatting about the product that we've been building over the last year and a half or so, Tabit, which is a B2B buy now, pay later product that was sort of incubated as part of the merchant growth business. So today we're going to talk about what it's like to build a brand new product, the benefits and challenges that come with building that product within an existing business and leveraging an existing business's tech stack, how we grew the team to address those uh, development needs, and how we were ultimately able to get it to market, land a big enterprise client, and you know what we see for the future. And hopefully you guys get some value out of this as you're thinking about building new products in your businesses. So with that said, Eli, why don't you give us a high level on what drew you to the concept of Tabit and maybe just give the kind of the story of how we met and got this going. Yeah, sure. So we alluded to this a little bit earlier in, in, um, in the first season, so, but I'll kind of re-explain a little bit how, how this came about. If we back up a little bit, my previous life was at a, a credit agency uh, here in Canada, which basically offered credit insurance, which means that any company that's selling on credit terms, so they're giving clients 20, 30, 60, 90 plus days to pay, we would offer credit insurance on that so that if there was a non-payment from the buyer, we would cover that. You know, among other things, that was what this credit agency did. And so I was really exposed to business to business transactions, more so on the international side of things. Learned a ton about that and how it affects businesses, how it helps them grow, what the challenges are from a administrative standpoint. I mean, it's fun to offer credit terms and make it more attractive for your buyers, but who's taking that credit risk? You know, how are you underwriting that? Are you offloading that risk off to a credit insurance? What are your losses? So on and so forth. So anyway, long story short, spent almost a decade there and then left to do a uh, small business financing company that was focused on purchase order financing. And that's when I met Dave and we chatted about that and you know how could Dave uh, be part of the funding for this company and so on. And we got to know each other a little bit. And I said, one time we were talking, I said, Dave, there's there's this thing that I've been looking at. I'm not sure exactly what the name, like how to name this, but basically it's digitizing the credit process between business to business offerings. And I said, it's a little bit similar to the B2C, what's going on with the B2C side, which is sort of, you know, your affirms, your pay brights, and those guys that are offering buy now, pay later. I've done a little bit of research on it. Here, here's kind of what, what we're looking at. And Dave's like, wow, that's really interesting because, you know, I had thought about this uh, at a high level. We kind of, you know, explored a little bit, parked it for now, but it is something of interest. And so one thing led to another and, and here we are. So that, that was it basically in, in a nutshell. Yeah. And I think uh, to that point, it occurred to me that there is the potential for this type of product in the B2B space, given that we'd been doing small business loans for so long. And it makes sense to, or it could make sense to have that experience be done in the middle of a transaction between businesses and facilitate a loan to make that transaction happen. That sort of made sense to me, but I've always been a little bit hesitant to just jump in with both feet into something brand new. That's just my own DNA. And I'll just be honest about that. Frankly, you know, the success that merchant growth has had was from spotting a trend that was happening globally and in particular in the United States uh, with small business lending growing outside of the banking system. But I have to be honest in saying that, you know, I didn't invent anything brand new. I saw a business model that was working and yeah. thought we could execute on it up here in Canada. And, and fortunately, I was right enough about that. And here we are. But what you brought in that conversation with me was, hey, look, 
there's companies around the world that are actually raising real money to do this and they have real product offerings and clearly have demonstrated product market fit because they're on a series a series b funding here at this point mm-hmm. and that was new information you know i hadn't actually noticed that to be honest despite how much business news i read i didn't actually know what was happening in that particular niche that immediately in my mind it was like a huge de-risking of the whole idea right clearly mm-hmm. not only did it make sense in theory it was making sense in practice in markets around the world that's really what did it for me there's also the fact that you know this is not a new concept if you take out the digitizing of it and it being a b2b e-commerce trade finance is not a, a new concept by any stretch of the imagination right that's how it's always been done on a business to business uh transactions right where companies are giving net terms they're giving they're offering usually up to 60 days but sometimes up to 180 days of net terms to their buyers but what was missing is access for small businesses to get to be able to uh, benefit from this right because a lot of companies will offer that kind of credit to a company that's been in business for x amount of years or they have x amount of revenue or they've been clients of theirs for a very long time and they've proven a successful uh, history of payment over you know 12 months 24 months whatever that threshold is that the company uh, has you know where small businesses were lacking is that and understandably again it's, it's you know you can't expect suppliers to start underwriting small businesses we know what the uh, failure rate for small businesses is so you can't expect suppliers who are selling you know, widgets to suddenly become experts in underwriting and so that was missing that's the sort of big gap and the reason why i was really um interested in kind of joining you dave and, and a team is the fact that that's where your bread and butter was, right? This is where you guys have been excellent at, at financing and having that um, decisioning engine that takes in a bunch of different information and offers something within, you know, within 30 seconds or a minute, you know, you can build the technology for a bunch of stuff, but having the information and the data to build something powerful like that, that's done over multiple years. And so the decision is, do you, do you just do the tech side of this? Or do you want to do the lending side of this or a little bit of a mixture of both? I'd say that for us, as much as we're building the tech, our goal is to be get money out the door to finance businesses to help that transaction from a financial standpoint. And on the other side of the scale, when it comes to B2B, BNPL, are companies that are strictly doing the technology. So their technology stack may be much bigger. They have a bunch of different offerings and so on, but their focus is that technology and they're sourcing lenders like us to be able to power their 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 platform. And so Within the B2B BNPL space, there's a ton of ways to get involved without necessarily being the actual lender, right? We we explore that. Yeah. And we've chosen to do both for a number of reasons, but I think that's, you know, makes our our offering quite powerful, particularly in Canada, where there's not a lot of options for this yet. Before we get into how it's gone and what were some of the, the challenges and where we are today and so forth, I think another kind of big picture trend that made this be the right place, right time, let's do this was really around growth in B2B e-commerce because the best sort of use case for a BNPL offering is to integrate it very elegantly at checkout. That's where it's going to get a lot of conversion and use and it's super simple for both sides. Yeah. Uh, so maybe just talk about that. And you obviously since joining us, been to a bunch of conferences around the world. What have you learned and why is B2B e-commerce growing the way it is? Yeah. So number one b2b e-commerce from all the conferences i've attended the learning is that we're about five to ten years behind b2c right and some of it is because of the willingness of some companies to actually invest in the b2b e-commerce 
I think there's a trend where companies are starting to understand that this is no longer nice to have. It drives me absolutely insane when I go onto a, a wholesaler's website and I see a digital catalog without pricing, right? And it says, click here and contact us to get information. I mean, why? Why are you still creating that friction between me wanting a product and me getting the product? One of the underlying things that turns out to be is that sales teams were actually a hurdle in this. And I was like, why would a sales team be a hurdle? But if you sort of back up a little bit and you, you can understand why a sales team is a little bit hesitant to have a B2B e-commerce that's fully functioning, because then they're no like it's less value they think that they're going to be adding. And a lot of their clients may just go to B2B e-commerce and make purchases and they're not going to hit quotas and so on and so forth. And so the way that actually, you know, companies that have done it well, what they've done is they worked with their sales teams to say, look, we can attach an account to your name. So this way, if your buyer makes any purchases, we can still assign that to you, right? And so they're working together to make that happen. But with the pitch that they're saying to the sales team is like, hey, we've got you here between nine to five, let's say. An online e-commerce platform is working 24-7 for you. Why would you not want this? And so it's been a bit of a progress in terms of getting buy-in from all different levels of the company. You know, that's that was one of the big learnings as to why B2B e-commerce is different. I mean, if you go on, it's not as straightforward, even from an e-commerce standpoint, because you know, they may be using a platform like a like a WooCommerce or whatever else for the front end where B2C buyers can just go buy. But then if you want a wholesale account, you've got a completely different portal. And so it's also a different technology, the platform, you know, other ways to integrate and so on. So there's a bit more complexity from that from that standpoint. Yeah, I love that example of the sales teams, such a, a very perfect example of humans perceiving tech to be a threat and yeah. then realizing it's actually an opportunity that's going to make them more efficient at what they do. And mm -hmm. they're going to actually work with the technology, not against it, right? Yeah. So that that is kind of insightful um, and an interesting example. Yeah, I mean, it leaves you to work on bigger, more valuable things than the sort of day-to-day -day transactions that can just be done uh, self-serve online, right? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Let's talk about our experience working together on tab, but I think we've come a long ways and built really impressive technology, not to toot our own horns too much. You know, it wasn't without its challenges also. You know, it did take a little bit longer than we originally thought it would. Yeah, just talk about your role, how we got in here, how we scoped it out, and started building it right so uh as i was joining again it was because i was super impressed with what you guys had already built from a financing standpoint the decisioning engine that can really turn this around and that's sort of the the value add is being able to get financing like this and the decision really quickly online and so super excited about that i think you and i as sales guys and, and optimists were a little bit too optimistic about how fast the technology can be built uh for this kind of thing and so to us, it, it was, hey, you know, there's, we've got the decision engine, we've got the technology to pull all that data and just make a, a credit decision. But we know, we're allowed to swear here, doc crap about what actually goes into a technology and all the different steps that it would take to one, integrate into a commerce platform that a seller is using to custom, to um, work with what they have in place already. If it's a custom build, if it's not a, a third party platform like a Shopify or WooCommerce. And three, all the different ways that a, an application can break, right? And what kind of data needs to be called? What kind of, you know, how, how do you mitigate the risk of fraud? How do you source data from different ERPs and different platforms? Like there's so much that goes into it that you and I may not have been super educated about uh, at the beginning, right? And that's where sort of the value of having an existing tech team that was familiar in this space was 
it was awesome because no one's just like, okay, we know exactly how to do this. But what we did is we started looking at a lot of examples in the B2C space and even some in the B2B space in, in outside of Canada and looking at, okay, what do their API documents look like? How do we learn from what they've already got in place? Let's not reinvent the wheel. And the team internally uh, that we've got here was awesome. You know, it's a small team, but took on this huge challenge. And, you know, at some point we realized, wow, this is bigger than we thought. And that's when we started adding people as we go. So, you know, we're still going through it now. Uh, it hasn't been perfect, but it never is. And I think that was a huge learning for me, at least. Yeah, I think we had a great lending technology, but what we needed to do is turn that into a payment technology. And, yeah. you know, in addition to integrating with the platforms, facilitating a payment, there's more to it than I think we thought because we don't come from payments. Just in terms of authorization, capture, refund, handling all these different scenarios and, and so on. But uh, we figured it out, right? Uh, which is awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, things that are worthwhile tend to be a little difficult. And that's another thing that we always have to keep in mind. It gives me a little bit of a comfort of when we're talking about, hey, there's these people that are interested in, in B2B. All these guys may want to get into B2B. And it's like, yeah, it's not that simple. It's well worth it, but it's not. There's a bit of a barrier of entry here because it, the, the build for it is tough. And so in a way, the scrappiness of our team and the willingness to learn and stuff to make it happen, I don't think is just just a, a given everywhere else, for example. I do think that, and again, I guess we're patting each other on the back a whole bunch, but hey, it's fun, whatever, is just that, you know, I think a lot of companies that get into the space, you know, and around the world, they have strong tech and strong payments backgrounds and understand payments. But at its core, it's a credit decision and it has to be a high quality credit decision because otherwise you don't have a, a viable business. And that sounds maybe a little bit too obvious, but to your earlier point, there's no shortcuts to being able to make a good credit decision without having years of experience in data to create like a really great score, you know, scoring model. So I feel like in a lot of ways, we came at it from the most important foundation. We just had to figure out all the payments angles. You know, when people are looking at this space or any other space, it, there's not one way of entering that space. There's a million ways of, of doing it. And I think what we're trying to do is focus on this side, which is the lending with technology enablement. And then on the complete other side, there are companies that are very excellent. You know, we're not just tooting our own horns. There's a lot of companies in our industry now that are very excellent at what they do. And they're really focusing on technology that is sort of more widespread with a lot more features and things like that, but they're just a technology, right? Not just, it's a big thing, but they've got to find the lenders and so on. So I think um, there's multiple ways to get into it is what I'm trying to get at. And I think right now where we started is with a focus on B2B e-commerce. You know, there's in-store, there's call centers, there's, you know, there's a million other ways to, to explore within this space. For sure. Yeah, it's a large, large area and a lot of problems to solve, right? Talk about working with the tech team, actually scoping it out, how we added it over time. We've added a lot. So it's not the, it doesn't, we don't work the way, you know, today, the way we did a year ago or 18 months yeah. ago. What have been some learnings there sort of as being a champion internally and working with the product and tech guys on actually getting this off the ground? Yeah. So there's a couple of things and, and I'll be really transparent about some of the challenges, right? It's there's benefit and there's challenges when you're joining a, a well-oiled machine that's already been operating a certain way. People are really good at doing what they've been doing for a while. And you've got to sort of push to make some things move forward because, you know, when you're coming in as someone that's sort of tunnel vision on one product, 
you're not as aware as to everything else that's going on. So part of the thing that I've had to do a lot with, with tech is really try to push the resources and so on towards Tabit, but also to learn alongside them, right? Not to the detail that they're learning. Obviously, like I, I don't know anything about development and coding and so on, but we've sort of learned together as we go through this year, you know, what an API, how does the API work? Uh, what are the different ways to connect into platforms? Who are the partners in this space? How do we dedicate the resources to the highest value partners when we're building this out? You know, what are some of the hurdles that other companies have come across from a tech standpoint? And so I think the biggest learning for me is how much more goes into every little part of a product, you know, being a, like a high level thinking person, I don't, I'm not really great with details when it comes to this kind of stuff. So when I sat down with the tech teams and, and saw sort of these flow charts and all this kind of stuff that there's so many steps that go into one thing happening, I was blown away by it. And so, you know, there's definitely been struggles with it. We've learned a lot along the way, but it's been an extremely big uh, learning product for me, a uh, learning, learning year for me. Yeah, for sure. If you could go back in time, would there be some things you would have done differently? If we went back in time, I don't know. I mean, hindsight is, is easy right now that we know all the information that we have. Of course, we would have done things differently. But at the beginning, we had no idea these things happened, right? Like the, there was some resources for this. Or there's one thing that you got to think about when you're starting a, a product like this, especially when you're an existing company, right? When you're not like a startup, you know, that's starting from scratch is what do you build and what do you buy? And what do you want to just sort of partner with someone on and essentially borrow the technology versus what do you build in-house? And so you know, maybe the only thing that I would think more about at the beginning is what is the value of us building it versus the value of partnering? I mean, there's some things that we flip-flopped on a, a little bit at the beginning that eventually we got to the right decision, but maybe a little bit more thought into that at the beginning, because it's nice, obviously, to have control of your product and to be able to own everything about it. But sometimes getting to market is also uh, something that's important and you got you to gotta explore all the, all the options there. Yeah, you agree? for sure. A lot of a lot of time is spent talking about MVP and getting to market fast, and how do we do that, right? And yeah. uh, a lot of debate around that over the last year and a half. I do think it's super key to just get into market and start learning from being in market. Um, it's an obvious point. A lot of people talk about it, but there's a natural tendency as builders to want to build something that's really elegant, really perfect, and as you mentioned earlier, kind of you, you have a lot of control over it and so on. But uh, if you spend too much time, you won't. You're likely going to have to make changes anyway once you're in market. So, you know. yeah, I think uh, someone said it. I don't know where they heard it, but if you're not embarrassed of your V1, you waited too long. Yeah, I mean, your MVP so. should be a little embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. So, like anyway, talk about landing our first big enterprise client. You know, working with enterprise versus you know smaller businesses. I'm a big fan of a portfolio approach to these business development activities. Whenever you're in B2B, you know, you want to land the big enterprise whale, but you also need some smaller clients to come into your system on a more regular basis to kind of smooth out how you're building out. But uh, yeah, talk to us about what it's been like on the biz dev front, which is obviously where you spend a lot of time talking to wholesalers about enabling Tabit in this case. Uh, but I'm sure your, your learnings could apply to other B2B sales too. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting essentially doing business development on a product that isn't ready yet. When we first started this, we were sort of saying, here's what's coming, you know, and, here, and we were sort of leaning on the credibility of merchant growth, right? And the experience that merchant growth has and the amount of funding that we've done over the years and so on. And so 
it was a little bit of sort of promising what's to come. And the, our first enterprise client actually came through a partner of ours. That partner was great. At the beginning, they helped us essentially pitch. We pitched them on our credibility and sort of what was coming. And then we went together to this enterprise client that they were already working with. So that sort of warm introduction was, was absolutely key in landing that first enterprise client. After that, it's really working with companies, especially at the enterprise level. And sometimes it's challenging when you don't have that product yet, but sometimes it's actually a benefit because you're, you're asking a lot of the questions as to what their challenges are and trying to accommodate that as you're building. And also nothing moves fast in enterprise. So we may start talking to you in September of 2021 and you're not actually launching until September of 2022, right? And so there was no harm in getting those conversations started as long as you were transparent with the companies. And so it's never too early to get the conversation started, right? Now on the SME side of things, however, it's hard to keep the interest of someone for that long if you don't have a product to deliver, right? And so SMEs want to be able to sort of, oh, okay, I like this. How do I try this? Boom, right? And so we also have to be transparent on that side as we were building it, like, hey guys, here's what's coming. We really want to learn with you as to what platforms you're using, how your ERP talks to your commerce platform, what some of the challenges that you're going to face and so on. And so that when we do have this product ready, it works well for you. But we'd love to get sort of not a commitment, not a signed commitment, but something to, from your from your end to say that you're interested in this when we go live. And so we were successful successful in doing that, but it has not been easy. It's thinking about dealing with enterprise is great, but it doesn't come without its challenges. I tell you that. Yeah, they're big organizations with. Uh... Often it's a challenge to understand how they come to decisions and how they're structured internally, who you're really talking to. And, and uh, often not necessarily a lot of transparency, us wanting to essentially partner with them. We're selling them a product, but we're integrating with them to offer a solution that facilitates their sales with small businesses. But uh, it's hard to even understand really where some bottlenecks are at points in time. So it can be frustrating, definitely selling to big enterprise and Whereas this, the more mid-market, smaller companies, it's a much more straightforward uh, situation. You're usually dealing with the decision maker directly, right? One thing we definitely did was start a lot of these conversations. You mentioned earlier, we were talking to a bunch of customers before we even had anything. I think there's a number of benefits to that. Like Number one, you learn what you want to build. And you also figure out whether you're on the right track or not. And right, one of my early takeaways being on some of these calls with you, I was just how interested businesses were in what we were building. You know, we weren't just kind of like high on our own idea, like it was actually landing. That was hugely important in sort of building confidence around the resource allocation required to really get this product built. So I, I think there's a lesson in that there as well. As you know, for entrepreneurs, it's it's sort of get to market quickly because you'll get feedback once you're in market. Even before you're in market, talk to the market, right? And have those early conversations. Worst case scenario, realize maybe you're not building the right thing. Best case scenario, you build an epic waitlist so that once you're in market, you're you know getting to your revenue goals faster. So there's you know really no downside to having those conversations early, in my view. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think there was one thing that wasn't so straightforward uh, for people to grasp, I guess, when it comes to offering the credit the way we're doing it, because when companies, especially these large enterprises are offering credit terms, they're usually pretty cookie cutter terms, right? Net 30, net 60, net 90. The way we're doing it is actually up to 12 months, but with weekly installment payments. And the question came is like, why are you doing weekly installment payments? You know, why aren't you doing net terms? 
that was something that we were able to sort of bring to the table and explain from experience, not, you know, here's what we think, but from experience, because we've been lending in the space for X, if you're going to serve the small business segment, which is who we're trying to serve the most and add value to, you've got to do it a certain, a certain way. And I think that was a, a big part of also, you know, us trying to gain that credibility with these kind of companies, even early on before we even had a, a product is, is showing you really understand what you're going after rather than just sort of, you know, of course you're going to learn from your clients, but you can't just go there and just tell me what you need. It's like, well, here's what we think and here's why, and this is what we're building. You know, what do you think about that? And yeah, so that's a very good point. We, we feel very strongly that a one large bullet payment, whether it's 30, 60, 90 days away, that's not the best way to lend to small businesses. It's better to have them make smaller payments more frequently and pay it out over time. And by doing that, we can actually extend it even further than, you know, 30, 60 or 90 days. So Great point. That's one area where it's like, hey, we actually have credibility here and know what we're talking about and know that this is a better way to offer credit to your buyers than a, a bullet. Um, In the small business segment, right? Like that's, you may not get large enterprise that are going to want to do weekly repayments, but you were going to serve them with net terms anyway. There's a focus as to who we're trying to help out here when we're, when we're approaching you. So I think there's an added value there. Definitely. As we come closer to the end of this episode, Eli, let's finish off with where Tabit is headed. Where do you see it in you know three to five years from now? Just taking over the world. That's that's it. Simple as that. No, I think actually I, I do want that. But uh, aside from that, <laughs> I think uh, we want to obviously explore more channels, Dave. Right? It's it's pretty straightforward. We're not giving away any secrets here by saying that we want to be everywhere that the seller is going uh, or the buyers are going to be. Right? B two B e commerce is one location, but there's many other locations where uh, your buyer is. And our goal is to be where the buyer is and offer the financing there. So in-store to uh, telesales, um, any other way of selling the product. And there are other integrations and maybe expansions of the products that we can do uh, based on sort of the original feedback and the original data that we get. I think there's some thought to what the future products are going to look like, but we want to learn from the early stages first before exploring that. So, you know, five years from now, we hope that this industry is as mature as it is in the B2C side of things. I hope that B2B e-commerce continues growing the way it's growing, because I think that companies are learning that it's not a, not a nice to have, and that sort of really fits well where we're, where we're aiming to go. I think you covered it pretty good, Eli. I would just add that we would hope that we could get bigger and bigger approvals without fully automated. You know, obviously we're starting out with, you know, a sort of mindful approach for risk management. And so yes, we're offering fully automated B2B BNPL up to a certain dollar amount. We're going to want to raise that significantly. And I see that being much higher three to five years from now as we, you know, iterate on the model and uh, you know, learn from the credit performance and get the confidence level up in our business. But at the end of the day, yeah, we just want to make it click of a button, the buyer will know exactly how much limit they have to work with that influences their buying behavior. Sellers love it. They convert more sales. You know, it's really creating new good credit in the economy where it wasn't being created before. And it's sort of like greasing the wheels of commerce in a big way. And so I think it's a really positive thing and it'll help a lot of businesses grow and achieve their goals, uh, which is fantastic. That's sort of what kind of like motivates me to get up in the morning work on this. So it's been great working with you, Eli, on this. And I think we're totally just getting started. So thank you for joining our organization doing this with us. Yeah, awesome. This has been great, great Dave. And I'm, I'm pumped. So what's to come? Onwards and upwards, as you always say. Let's make it happen. Yeah. 
Definitely. Thanks for listening, guys. Hopefully you learned a few things from that maybe and uh, look forward to having you back to the podcast in the coming weeks.